Welcome to Thriller Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Bitcoin. kind of talk about like the year of 2022 for bitcoin and just kind of your thoughts on it because i I know you see a lot um from where you're at and you do a lot of pods and a lot of writing and stuff so um just kind of want to hear your thoughts i kind of want to go down a list i kind of have a list we don't have to stick to it but um what's your what's what's the biggest story in bitcoin this year do you think Oh man, you caught me off guard. Let me reflect a bit on the events that happened because maybe I, I might be stuck in a bubble. From a development point of view, there was a lot that happened. And even though the Lightning Network matured, I think that the skepticism increased in regards to it, which I think is great as it proves that we really need to move forward and make this happen. At the same time, we did not have enough on-chain activity to justify moving to second layers. You can look at Liquid, for example, and you can see that it's a ghost town and the blocks are empty. Now that you have mempool.space displaying Liquid activity, you can see that nobody is using it, which is kind of sad. So really, there was a lot that happened. There was a lot of development in terms of privacy stuff. There was Wasabi 2.0, which launched, and they do more advanced and more larger, more complex coin joins, which give you a larger crowd in which you can hide. Of course, the war with Samurai went on. And there's also, right now we have, but I guess this is from last year, 
but we have the wallet by Commerce Block, which is called Mercury. And that one allows you to use state chains to do coin swaps. Basically, it means that you are exchanging your UTXOs with somebody else's off-chain. So there is no permanent record of your exchange. And basically, if you don't like your UTXO for whatever reason, you can change it with a stranger. But you can get a worse one. Like you can get the identity of whatever, some exchange hacker. But you can also just do this for fun with a friend. I don't know. I guess I was stuck in this bubble with privacy and I've missed on the larger picture. But I think that overall, it was a super interesting year. We have seen so many dynamics take place and we have seen the beginning of a bear market and the aftermath of lots of unethical Bitcoin and crypto businesses that collapsed. And what happens when that that event takes place? It was crazy last year when miners moved out of China. And now I think the mining pool with the largest hash rate is, I, I think it's Foundry USA. I don't want to, I have to double check, but lately that one has been huge. And the ones from China have less than 50% right now in terms of distribution, which is interesting to see take place in such a short amount of time. And it's also proof that proof of work is the way to go because it's so dynamic that you don't get this small group of people who monopolize the entire mining and securization of the network. So yeah, I'm like, are you interested in something specific or are we going to talk about No, it's good as... No, it's it's good to, it's good to hear your different like uh, areas that that you kind of define as a uh, you know as a I mean upon this quick little reflection of, of 2022 I I do see the lightning privacy side as well too um, just from over here I I see that the 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 just sheer awareness of it is like at an all time high I I think last year I remember seeing a couple talks but I feel like this year lightning privacy is just like on the top of uh, everybody's mind that I talk to on a daily basis. Um, so it's, it's good to see kind of like uh, developers and even anonymous developers start um, creating projects for that. Um, and we saw like Ellen proxy and the guys at uh, mutiny wallet and all that kind of stuff kind of happen. Um, so I, I do, I do think that's a trend that we're going to start seeing even um, going into 2023. And, and I, I do see that, um, like you had mentioned Wasabi and other coin joins. And um, I know Ben Carmen, um created a Vortex. I haven't played around with it yet, but that's another coin join project of a sort. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting too how, you know, the mining sector, as far as where it moved, I, I do feel like Texas got a lot of that, um, Hash power, but I've had this conversation with Charlie Lee in an episode that were recorded earlier this year, and I basically told him that it's super ironic how the United States wants to regulate mining harder than China ever did. And they're much more concerned about it. In the case of China, they would say that it's banned, but they would let it happen. There is a lot of this. How should I put it? 
gray market developments that happen in authoritarian countries, where you assume that the law gets applied by the letter of the law, but it doesn't. And there's a lot of freedom in small areas where stuff happens. Whereas in the United States, everything has to be regulated, has to comply with local governmental and federal laws. It's pretty insane when you think about it, that the United States is trying to impose more rules on what you can do with your computer and what kind of cycles you can hash with your processor than any other country in the world. No, I, I agree. There's one of the one of the biggest stories of the year was the whole tornado cash debacle, right? You know, the SEC had came out and um, uh, started uh, blacklisting, um, uh, I guess, I guess transactions uh, or, or addresses, I should say. Um, that that was kind of mind blowing. Um, seeing that actually happen, I mean, it was on the Ethereum side, but. Um, it definitely felt like the first shot uh, uh, from from from, from stateside uh, that they were going to go after developers who were <laughs> contributing code to this thing. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, but Tornado Cash is different from Bitcoin Coin Join protocol in the sense that it's a smart contract that's deployed on chain, and it has a token. So these differences are pretty important in defining what it is and how it works. And you can argue that as a smart contract, it's more centralized than something which is an open source protocol that anyone can download. It's also more censorable because you can just make your node provider. And in the case of Ethereum, you have like three or four of them. Actually, I guess you have more. But I, I suppose some of them rely on some other big infrastructure provider. But, you know, Ethereum is not really decentralized. It relies a lot on politics and lobbying. They do a lot of that. Yeah, it, and it was... They, it, you know, they don't uh, want the veil to be lifted. Yeah, it was interesting, too, because I, I pulled up the... Uh, from the from the Treasury website, uh, they they said here virtual currency mixers that assist criminals are a threat to U.S. national security. The Treasury will continue to investigate the use of mixers for illicit purposes and use its authorities to respond to illicit financing risk in the virtual currency ecosystem. I, I agree with every point that you made, uh, but it, it to me the way I read this, it, yeah, but CoinJoin wallets are not mixers. I agree. I I hundred percent agree. I, to me, when I read this, I this this starts that that like they're trying to draw a line, um, this imaginary line that they've created because it doesn't actually really exist in the digital world. And then they're they're like going to keep moving forward on that line until we kind of push back on it. Um, that's kind of how I see it playing out. Um, but yeah, man, these are dark times. <laughs> I mean, we saw what Trudeau did this year, too. That was another thing. Um, when you look at the, uh, when you look at what he was doing as far as the, uh, anti-mandate protesters, uh, and, and then like freezing their bank accounts, that was, that was unheard. Like what, like what kind of dictatorship is this in Canada? Um, what did you think of that? What, did you hear about that? 
you know, we have been talking about this for such a long time that it's possible for that to happen. And part of, you know, the narrative of Bitcoin is that you cannot, that cannot happen. You know, you, you have your own keys, you're sovereign. You can use your money however you want, whenever you want, without any government telling you not to use it. And then you have the situation where it happens in the place where you expected the least. You would assume that Canada is a, like a pillar of Western civilization and freedom of speech and freedom of protest and expression. And then you see that happening and you see how an elected prime minister basically turns into a dictator who uses, you know, divide and conquer for the purpose of trying to stop protests against something that he can no longer control and turned out to blow in his face. And yeah. then we were proven right. Yeah, I would say about a couple of years ago that Bitcoiners were concerned trolling. And they were just talking about stuff that can only happen in China, but in China, like in the worst possible scenario. That's not going to happen in the West. Most people are unaware that this can happen to them and they still turn a blind eye to the concept of CBDCs. And if you want to go into that, there are going to be pilots in lots of countries starting next year. And that's super concerning. Yeah. And just to just to kind of zip up this last point was the um, the Emergency Act that they had passed in 1988 required a high legal bar to be invoked. Uh, it may only be used in an urgent and critical situation. And they, they considered, this was the, this is to me the kicker to this whole thing. They considered um, 400 to 500 trucks that were parked uh, in the city center for 18 days as a, uh, as a, as a, uh, <laughs> as a threatened, as a threat to their democracy. Isn't that insane? Like they raised a total of 8.4 million, uh, on the crowdfunding platform and it was like 93,000 donations for the truckers and they didn't see a cent of it. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's, these are crazy times, man. I agree with you that it's ridiculous, but at the same time, I don't think there was any point in the history of Bitcoin when the use case became as obvious to everyone and anyone who got exposure to it understood what it's for. And there is no going back from here. And I think that Bitcoin in the short term or medium term, maybe will not become what we hope that it will become, meaning that it's not going to be this universal currency but it will be a great way to protest against your government. When you start using it and you develop a parallel economy with different markets where you sell goods and services in exchange for Bitcoin and the government doesn't get the cut, that's going to be a moment when they start to make concessions and they step back and say, okay, what do you guys want? Or else they become violent. But if you have a critical mass of Bitcoin users, who use it peer-to-peer -peer like it's intended, the governments will have to negotiate and realize that they're becoming obsolete, which means that they have to adapt to the situation. Yeah. And, and to get back to that point about the, um, about the, the CBDCs, um, 
I think I think that's just going to be the whole surveillance. Get, I mean, the the quickest way the WEF can get to full control of the entire world, man. I I, I can see one digital currency, and I, I can see them try to, you know, pilot this into all these different countries, and uh, for them to adopt it, it's we're moving into a surveillance world, man. I mean, we're already there. This is just the um, the cherry on top. I attended a conference in Prague, which was called Students for Liberty or something. Mm -hmm. It was in April or May, I think April. And there was a guy on stage at this super libertarian conference who was talking about CBDCs and why we should not be worried about them, that they're overblown in terms of impact and proportions and consequences. And we should just turn a blind eye and let them do it because it's not going to become popular and on every slide he was putting pictures of kittens and that's where we're at that's i guess the level at which they're trying to infiltrate and convince us that it's not such a bad idea just let it happen let's see what what happens if people adopt it it's not that bad like governments have been controlling money for a long time okay they can do it digitally right now they can block your access they can limit on what you can spend it and for how long you can use it. That's fine, right? Because we're moving into the 21st century and we're supposed to be evolved civilizations or whatever. They present all of these technological arguments that we're supposed to live in 2023 and not in 1950, whatever, when they were still using cash all the time for every transaction. Yeah, I, I, it's crazy, but yeah. at the same time, we have to look at the world as a market where there's supply and then there's demand. If there is a supply of something and we create no demand for it, then it's going to cease to exist. So it's up to us to either adopt something or else make it redundant. Yeah, I, I personally think that it, once we have CBDCs, it's just going to lead to even even more hyperinflation. Like. At, at some point, if they can just literally print, <laughs> I mean, these, these tokens, I mean, that's what they are, right? They're just going to print these tokens and they'll say there's dollars somewhere being stored um, that are one-to-one -one backed on these things. Um, we'll, we'll, and people are supposed to take their word for it. Um, at that point, like, it's, it's going to get, it's going to get really, really, really crazy, really, really fast. And I think that, that all that'll do is just lead to hyperinflation into a, a, a total collapse. Of uh, and and that's when I think Bitcoin will really see its um, will really see its at uh, the turning point. Is people will really realize once they roll out these CBDCs that um, all they did was just a, a, all they did was just uh, light light gasoline, uh, or they threw gasoline on that fire that is Bitcoin, and, and that's just when it's just going to take over. And I personally believe that people will just opt out. People will just say, "I don't want it. I don't want your CBDC. I only accept Bitcoin." I think that's what's going to happen if they really do try to push this through. It's just, it's just not going to work. Well, you're right that they can print as much money as they want. But at the same time, you have to realize that they also control how it's being spent. So it means that they can fake the demand for it, meaning that they mm. create a huge supply and then they limit somebody else's access to their money on the other side. So they essentially burn part of the supply. So that the newly inflated money does not impact the economy to the same extent. 
So they can play the Robin Hood game. They can play the authoritarian government game where if you speak against the government, you're not going to be able to buy groceries anymore. They can do a lot of stuff to limit how money is spent. And that's why we have inflation, right? Because they create money out of thin air and then it doesn't get spent the way that you expect. People are not complying to some agenda. But what if they were limited in the ways that they can spend it? Meaning that they will do exactly what the government expects them to do or else their money will expire. So I don't think there will be hyperinflation with CBDCs because the central issuer can manipulate how the money is being used and how much of it exists. So when they create some coins on one side, they can cancel or burn some other coins on the other side. It's all within their control. But people will turn to Bitcoin because of freedom. I don't think it will be for monetary purposes. I think that people care much more about their own freedom than they care about their money. But that's just my hypothesis. You can yeah. disagree. No, no, I, 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 you know, I'm hearing you. I, I just think, um, I, I personally think just how it plays out is just it. You just start seeing um, Bitcoin, you know, not, I wouldn't just say companies, but e- even like Bitcoin focused like uh, marketplaces just start popping up more and more in, in the real world and in the digital world. And I think you're just going to see people just opting out of the surveillance CBDC that, you know, uh, you know, there's just no, I mean, when you put them side by side, I can already think of the great propaganda we will be creating. <laughs> like you'll have like the CBDC and then Bitcoin right next to it. And like, if you look at it from the pros and cons on each side, like, why would you not? Use, it's going to be like an absolute no-brainer for people. And I think if they really want to go head-to-head with Bitcoin in Bitcoin's backyard, that is the digital world. I just think they're just, they're just yeah, they're just going to lose straight up just on the features alone that, uh, that Bitcoin provides. But um, I, think, I, think, I think you get as, exacerbated by... Yeah, uh, but this only, you have to also consider another aspect, Car. So you are thinking purely from an American perspective where there is a strong private sector, which has most of the capital. But even in the US, you have the government, which became bigger in the last two or three decades, bigger than it used to be. But there are so many countries where most employees are state employees, essentially. They work for the government. Yeah. (laughs) And they're not going to say, yeah, fuck the government, which pays for my monthly wage. I'm just going to use this freedom money, which, by the way, my government hates. This is where they're just going to play by the rules because no, I likely I, have no choice. I agree. I agree. This is where I think it goes back to, to states and cities. And this is where you'll start seeing that line drawn. Like, th- make no mistake. I think you're exactly exactly right. I mean, you could even you could even say like here in Austin, there's like 40 percent of the people that work here or work for the state or for the city. Like, it's ridiculous. Uh, it is fine. It is what it is. But uh, I think at at a certain point you get the right you get the right person in office, uh, you'll start seeing some major changes start taking place, especially if um, if the with all the lobbying that goes that, that goes on. But no, I agree. I I totally have an American perspective, more so Texan perspective than most. And um, how is it over there um, in your neck of the woods? Is it uh, do you see Bitcoin adoption happening? Is it is it growing? Do you see more businesses accepting it, or is it just pretty much the same where it was two years ago. 
I think it's pretty much the same it was like six or seven years ago in terms of adoption. But at the same time, you see more awareness. I think this bull cycle, we have had more, more of these, I guess, you know, it's for all the wrong reasons. We had all of these financial gurus starting to talk about Bitcoin all of a sudden. And they don't understand how it works. They just look at the logarithmic graph on coin market cap. And they're like, yeah, I know that this is going to go up. This is going to go down. They make predictions in their videos. And there are thousands of people who follow them every day and try to copy their trade and stuff like that. So there is still this branch of speculators who see some potential in Bitcoin. But on the other hand, I can see a change in the amount of literature, which is specific to Bitcoin. I myself translated a book last year about Bitcoin, and it's published by the largest Romanian publishing house. It's available in every major bookstore. And it's about $6, I think. What is it called, Or even less. I think right now it's on discount for five. So you can get that for a very affordable price and anyone can learn the basics about Bitcoin. And there's also another guy who translated lots of other books like Seyfedeen's and a few others. But he has a more limited publishing reach in the sense that he must negotiate personally with every store that he's going to list them because he wanted to buy the publishing rights himself and then print them himself and do everything by himself. But, you know, it's a lot better than it was during the previous... I think we met in 2019, so it was four years ago. Right. About January, when I published that article about Richard Hart. That's what we discussed about. <laughs> dude, so that guy, dude, that then, guy's still going. A lot that has happened. That guy is still going, Vlad. How is that, how is that possible? Yeah, at the time, it was called Bitcoin Hex. Oh, man. God. So go ahead with your question. How is that possible that Richard Hart is still around? Yeah, dude. It's, it's, well, you it's, know, a new fool is born every day, so... <laughs> You know, uh, as far as far as lightning, as far as lightning, do you do you see that uptick as well on that side, too, as well? Or do you kind of just consider um, you just kind of look at Bitcoin more so? As far as adoption, I mean, I attended a hackathon by Fulmo in February of this year. And I saw so many enthusiastic builders who don't care about the price, who don't care about anything related to immediate adoption. They build stuff because they need it. And they build stuff because they think others will need it in the future. And there's a lot of cool projects. I interviewed a few. There's Ellen Bits by Ben Ark, which I think is brilliant. You can set up your Lightning wallet with nothing but a phone or your computer and your browser. There's Albi by a guy whose name is Bulmi or something. He's Dutch. There's also here in Europe, there's another one from Switzerland, which is called Lipa. And they also operate in Berlin, as far as I know. And they try to create these easy point of sale devices that they can use in restaurants and shops for small transactions with Lightning. And it, it was pretty funny to also see the beginnings of Cashew, 
Cashew is a Chom and eCache protocol for the Lightning Network, and it works as an extension for Ellen Bits. And also, I saw at the beginnings of Noster or Nostar. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. It's N O S T R. And that's supposed to be a social media platform, which is a protocol as opposed to a website. It's decentralized. Anyone can run a relay. You can run your own. You connect with others. It's better than the Mastodon federations. And you can only use it with, I mean, to use it, you only need a public key from your Lightning wallet, which you can set up on the spot. And it's super cool. Yeah, Still dude. not on par with the competition. Yeah. No, it's it's but it's it, growing. Yeah, it's growing. I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Noster. It's um, it's it's pretty exceptional. I'm I'm starting to see it kind of. I think I think just the features alone are are gonna are gonna get to uh, will will help with adoption because like you can even throw like a um like an invoice inside of the Domus app and it'll just automatically uh just you just hit pay and then you can pay um uh with whatever your Lightning wallet is just right from the app. It's kind of cool. Um. And then um, he's even doing something where you can have your profile. It can be like a, a, a GIF or like a, like a somewhat like a moving image. So I, I think it's just going to get to a point where like we're going to look at Twitter and then we're going to look at some of these Noster apps and it's just going to be like night and day as far as like features. And I, and I, think, I think that's where I think that's where we will get the bulk of uh, adoption is because a lot of these things, a lot, a lot of the reasons why like these bigger apps like TikTok and like um, Facebook and Instagram. And the, the reason that they keep continuously get more and more users is because of those uh, really like great features. Right. Um, you're even seeing snap kind of clap back um, doing, uh, doing like uh, rev share as far as like trying to move people back from TikTok over to snap. You're seeing that with YouTube as well. They're implementing shorts and they're going to start doing like a rev share model as well too um, for those shorts. Um, and so like it, it really just comes down to the feature set and if you can keep, um, innovating there. And I think when you look at Nostra, if you have this open protocol where everybody in the world is, you know, uh, contributing to this, like as a weekend project of a sort, then I think at that point it, it, it just becomes like the, the, um, like kind of like the email protocol for, um, for the web. It's, it's going to be really cool. I'm really bullish on Nostra. Yeah, and there's no token, there's no VC monetization system. It's super pure, and that's what I like about it. I was there in the Telegram chat. I think it was late 2020 or early 2021 when I noticed that this is happening. And this was by virtue of my friendship with Ben Ark. And there were people like Melvin Carvalho and Fiat Jeff were talking about it. And I, I just set up in my browser an account for the first time. I, I noticed that there's nothing happening there. I was like, ah, okay. Maybe it's not happening. At one point, I remember that Fiat Jeff made a comment that now that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, it, you know, this might be a sign that Noster is no longer required because he assumed that the free speech commitment that he made was going to be kept. Of course, we live in the real world and ideals 
can't really stand the test of governments pressuring you and whatever got revealed with the Twitter files. And I'm not sure if we want to get into that. I haven't even been paying attention to but that. But still, you see Bitcoiners use Bitcoin technology in a very creative way, which, you know, we got to peer-to-peer technologies once again, and they're once again popular. And you look at stuff like, I think it's called Imprevious, and then Previous? there's also Bitfinex's, uh, actually it's not Bitfinex, it's Hole Punch. It's Keat, yeah, which they released very recently, and they're about to open source any day now. It's pretty incredible. All of this speculation money was, I guess, used for some good causes that only made the internet a better place for the user. And there's no reason to complain. Like, I can look at the government. I can read the news all day long and feel depressed and feel like the end is coming. But on the other side, there is all of this new tech that's being built. And you realize, okay, it's going to take them a few years to catch up with this. And by the time they catch up, still, we're going to be more advanced. And the fight for freedom is something that takes place every day, is something constant. And I'm happy that I'm here to see all of this. You know, we, we live truly exciting times. Yeah, we do. It, it, it's a great time to build. It's a great time to be in Bitcoin. Um, I'm bullish on the future, man. I mean, I might, I might sound like I'm kind of down, um, you know, and kind of upset with like how everything's going in the world and it's just feeling more and more centralized and controlled, but, um, I'm bullish on, on, on this movement. Um, cause it's, it's happening and it's, it's, it's inspiring to see like the people that you discuss, like the Fiat Jaffs, the Ben Arks, like they all have this like FOSS like ethos and, and just seeing that more and more kind of cultivated inside the space is just um it's 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 kind of cool to see and, and i'm seeing it more and more here at plub lab where it's just that everybody has this like foss um mentality about things and it's i think that's i think also too i, I don't know if you i don't know if you've seen this because I, I came in later into i mean i was always a bitcoiner but i came in later like just being bitcoin only um much later in my journey uh a lot of it thanks to you by the way um, but, uh, it, uh, I'm seeing it more and more these days where there's just, um, uh, people just being much more open, uh, than I remember being a, a poo-poo coiner back in, you know, 2017. Um, I don't remember seeing that, uh, back then. By open, what do you mean? Uh, I remember when I got into, ethereum back in like 2017 and i remember like just the openness to getting in that community and talking to everybody and like um it it, to me i didn't know any difference between bitcoin and ethereum at that time um and i feel like uh when i would go i'm not gonna gonna single anybody out or anything but i remember when i would look at the bitcoin side it didn't feel like that um these days i think it's because of all the whole meetup culture and stuff like that i feel like Bitcoiners are much more open and willing to have a dialogue with you if you're a poo-poo coiner or whatever, if you're into Solana or whatever. Um, and I feel like that has, I think that's a thing that's changed for me in the past like four years, um, seeing that, um, that trend. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if you see that too as well on your side, but um, that's what I mean by being more open and uh, 
You were always like that though. I will say though, yeah, you were like one of the first Bitcoiners to actually reach out to me. Um, so. Uh, thank you for giving me credit for something because I usually get none. I'm not desired by the circles that ask you to pay for steak dinners. <laughs> so there's that. Plus, I'm in a place in the world where I don't get to meet Bitcoiners in my daily life, which I think is good for my mental health. I would not enjoy to always talk about Bitcoin even when I eat outside or whatever. So I'm I'm happy with what I do and what's happening with my projects. But going back to your idea, I, I tend to think of Ethereum like some sort of layer five or layer six for Bitcoin. It's the experimentation with everything that was undesirable in Bitcoin. Because there's always this story that Vitalik wanted to build Ethereum on top of Bitcoin. It's not entirely true. There was Counterparty, which was before Ethereum in January of 2014. That one still works. And it's like a marvel of Bitcoiner development, you know, because it still works. It was abandoned for a few years. Nobody was using it for a while. And then it was brought back during the NFT mania. And I can argue that it can do NFTs, meaning tokens, because NFT was a commercial term for something that nobody understood and people thought they were buying JPEGs when in fact they were buying tokens. But I can argue that Bitcoin does tokens a lot better than Ethereum for the simple reason that it has a good history of immutability unlike Ethereum. And you have a guarantee that it's going to be there for a longer time. Plus you can name your assets, which is something that you don't get on Ethereum. On Ethereum, it's like a token which starts with OX and it has a series of numbers and letters. On Bitcoin Counterparty, you can actually name it and you can call it Vlad's GIF or whatever. And when you buy one of those tokens or whatever, you know that you own Vlad's GIF. So Vlad's GIF is going to represent whatever it is that you bought. In the case of Ethereum, you, you just buy a string of letters and numbers that mean nothing. In the case of Bitcoin, you actually buy something which has a name. So I don't know why Ethereum can't do this, but it's pretty cool that Bitcoin does it. Plus, this year we've seen the development of RGB, which I think right now has a functional wallet on Android. And there was also Taro from Lightning Labs, which stole the idea from RGB and made it something which I think is going to create stable coins on top of the Lightning Network. So basically, all of these use cases that were first tested in Ethereum, actually not first tested because stable coins like Tether comes from the Omni layer, which was built on top of Bitcoin in 2015. And for a while, it was being traded on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then they realized that it doesn't really scale. So they moved to Ethereum. Then they realized that one doesn't scale either. So I guess everything is coming back to Bitcoin at some point on a layer. But the development that's happening on first layers or other blockchains right now is mostly experimental for stuff that's going to return to Bitcoin at some point. Yeah, it's, and it's scammy, it's super shady, but at the same time, 
there's some good stuff that comes out of it. I'm not the kind of person who's going to look the other way and say it's a scam when there's some cool stuff like I, f- I think the best stuff about Ethereum is the fact that they have stable coins and the fact that they have Uniswap. So you can basically trade your BTC for USDT or USDC without a QIC exchange. And you can argue right now that it's not decentralized, that it, it can fail. But if you don't want to do KYC and you want to be a true cypherpunk, like, well, I can see some use in this. It's not all scams. It's not all crypto kitties or hacks or stuff that gets built, becomes popular and turns out to be a Ponzi. So there is some technologically interesting stuff that comes out of it. Plus this, the research that they're doing into zero knowledge proofs, which are a concept first introduced in the late 80s. and if you, if you read cryptography books from the early 90s, you're going to find the concept of zero-knowledge proofs, but explained in a very theoretical manner. So it was not super advanced. It was not really used for anything. I think Zcash was the first one to bring it into this sector, and it was perfected. And right now, it's not just a privacy scheme. It's also something which helps with scalability. Because zero-knowledge proofs work in a way that, for example, if I want to know about you, that your first name is Carr, I don't have to watch your ID. All I need is to get a confirmation with zero-knowledge that your name is truly Carr. There's going to be a protocol in place which does not reveal to the rest of the world the information from your ID card or driver's license. It just confirms certain inquiries that you want to enable the rest of the world to make about you. And that's only a yes or no. And that's pretty cool for transaction privacy, for financial privacy, if we figure it out in a scalable way. And there are high hopes where it, let's see where it gets. Yeah, I can also talk uh, about stuff like Mimblewimble, which I I think is also super interesting for privacy, but it it all has trade-offs, you know, there's no universal solution. I, I will I will say this just for the listeners out there. Um that uh, you know, if you don't know, Ethereum is pre-mined, right? So uh, at launch they had over 60 million ETH uh for Ethereum investors, 72 million ETH at launch. Um so 62% of this current supply was pre-mined. So it's good to remember that about Ethereum. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just spreading out these facts. You also have to remember like stuff like Uniswap and uh, all those other uh, projects you had mentioned, and they're heavily WEF influenced. You know, they have lawyers and um, people that are on their staff that are literally working hand in hand with the WEF. Um, you can check out Thriller Bitcoin for that kind of article and stuff. Joseph Lubin, as you know, runs Consensus. He also is on the board of the Ethereum Foundation. Um, he was, he was designated a lot of ETH in the early days to get the Ethereum thing going. So it's just, just remember what you're, you're buying into. Like when you start trading and building on Ethereum is like, you're building onto a Ponzi scheme. Basically I will, I do agree with you though. I do think there are some technological advances and cool things happening, but it's all funded by, by scamming, quite frankly. Um, um, and so I, I do hope one day Ethereum does die. Like, because it, it wastes a lot of time that other Bitcoiners uh, who are like, would have gotten to Bitcoin, would have gotten to Lightning, 
Um, and it does, it just wastes three or four of their years um, thinking that this is the the way it is. And it's, it's, it's just completely not true at all. Um, I think zero knowledge proof is, are pretty interesting. And there's a lot of people talking about it. We went to Atlanta during TapConf and they had a whole little segment during, during the bit devs there. So I think, I think that's really interesting. And that's where I think, that's where I, when I look at all these poo-poo coins, I really look at them as just like funding. Like all they doing are just funding developers to do, uh, to do this. And I, and I, and I think, uh, when, um, when it, when it gets set out there, well, Ethereum's doing this, Ethereum, I'm like, no, they're literally just creating tokens and printing them off, trading them. I mean, we're seeing stuff like FTX and that kind of mentality that, that happens inside the Ethereum space. is just like this, um, it's just so high time preference. It's like, they, they don't, they don't care about the destruction that they leave, um, behind them. And that's the thing that really drives me crazy about, um, Ethereum just in general. Um, but anyway, that's just kind of yeah, my thoughts you, on it. You, you have to realize that it's a free market and we have to absolutely understand that experiments needs, need to happen somewhere. The problem that I have with Ethereum beyond the pre-mine and the fact that it doesn't scale and the fact that, you know, it's different from what you think it is. So my biggest problem is the marketing the way that it's being presented to newcomers. They're trying to hype some use case in 2016 and 17. It was DAOs and ICOs. In 2019, 2020, and 2021, it was NFTs. And now I think DAOs are making a comeback. But, but the- I, I suppose they're less scammy because you, you don't have like some random internet dude who sets up a website. No and says that he's going to start some organization to revolutionize dentistry, which was Dentacoin, by the way. You have banker types who are building stuff with tokens. And I don't know. They they might turn out to be just as big of, as scammers, as yeah, and, and the on, random internet dudes. I don't know. but Yeah, and that, that's the thing about... I think that's the thing where most people don't recognize the fact that you, you, you mentioned marketing and you mentioned all these things that Ethereum has and why, it's, why people perceive it with value. But the reason behind that though, Vlad, is, is because they have money to market. Like They have money to use to, to get these ideas out there into the, uh, into the greater media space. Bitcoin doesn't have that. Um, Lightning doesn't have that. We have very little money for any type of funding, much less like money uh, for marketing. So that's why you see a lot of this, the, the Bitcoiners doing their own grassroots type of marketing and grassroots type of communities, because it's up to us to get the, the Bitcoin open source ideas out there, the, these, these Bitcoin projects out there. Like it, that's what's the requirement uh, from, from Bitcoiners today. And that's the only way we're going to win is if like every single person is out there advertising Bitcoin um, in a positive way. And I, and that's the, that's why they kill us every time in every cycle is because they have just more money for marketing and they spend the bulk of their money just on marketing and very little on actual um, technological advances. I mean, don't get me wrong. They do do a lot of funny and you do see that. And some of the biggest exchanges like Gemini and Coinbase and uh, even Kraken make, you know, millions of dollars from these poo poo coins, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, yeah, man, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all a scam. That, I mean, that's where I fall on it. I mean, look at what FTT did, right? They, they issued that token. Um, 
and it it basically gave a discount on their trading fees. I mean, we're seeing it with CZ and Binance, right? He he printed off BNB and then he's using it to do whatever he wants with his Binance chain. It's it's these tokens are only made uh, to um, to scam. It's yeah. What did you think of the SBF stuff? What did you think of the whole collapse of that? Did you did you uh, did you see that coming? Yeah, I did. I mean, I was super skeptical of F FTX since I've, I've seen it rise to prominence so quickly. I was wondering, who are these people and why are they so well connected? How come they have the most money for lobbying? How come they have all of these celebrities endorsing them? How come this guy doesn't go to jail and cannot stay in jail? And obviously, it was a huge governmental operation, if you ask me. And that's what it is. And it was an attempt to undermine an entire industry and overregulate it and take control of what they perceive to be maybe controlled to a great extent by the Chinese government. And I'm pretty sure that that's what Binance is. And you have these two polar opposites that used to be partners or whatever, and right now is, uh, have fought during the last few months. And that's why they're trying so hard to bring Binance down right now. They want to purge the entire industry and whatever. Yeah, Destroy some of these actors. I, I, I think we got to a level where it's a lot bigger than a few dudes doing startups. You have to ask yourself where SBF got his money from and why he was so well-funded and why he was always in the media being portrayed as the savior who is doing, what's it called? Effective altruism. It's, I don't know. I think we got to the point where we have governments being involved through fake private sector companies that try to take control either of the narrative or else of the capital that's being moved around. And the fact that FTX was used in both political campaigns and Ukraine donations only goes to show that it was pretty well connected and tied in with the government. And the fact that it collapsed only proves that on one hand, they were super arrogant about it. They believe that nobody has that kind of information or the capital to make the bank run happen or the shorting of FTT. And they also believe that nobody was going to talk about it if they know, because they have an incentive to be silent about it. So it was just a matter of starting a bank run on them and they were destroyed in three days. I'm pretty sure that this is a lot bigger than two companies. And I'm pretty sure that this might have something to do with the fact that there was that Eric Voorhees debate where SBF basically came out as super arrogant and he was basically telling everyone, get used to it. I'm in charge now. I'm the one doing the lobbying. I'm the one who's going to influence policy and this is going to happen whether you like it or not. That was my takeaway from that debate. And I'm pretty sure that there are some whales in this space, okay? And they're not usually making moves, but when they see this kind of threat, they reacted to it. And 
it seems like this FTX affair was a lot deeper than anyone expected. When you see that this guy doesn't get arrested and when he gets arrested, he gets bailed out in a few days and then nobody talks about him anymore and he's allowed to live for the rest of his life in his parents' house with no issue. And then you think of Ross Ulbricht or the guy from Tornado Cash and lots of other developers who went in for lesser crimes, who did not defraud millions of people for billions of dollars. And I don't know. Sometimes there is this principle that if you owe the bank $100, then the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank, let's say, $10 billion, which is more than half of the assets of the bank, then you basically own the bank because they have to negotiate with you to get their money back. So in this case, the bank is the government and we have this situation where um, stuff happens for absurd reasons and there is no sense of justice. And I'm glad we figured this out. It was obvious, but at the same time, we, we were shown that there is no real justice. We should not have the reasons to trust in the system that is going to be fair. We should build something parallel to it, which creates a better world. Yeah, I, I think you I think you touched on uh, two things I, I also agree with there as well. Um, oh, for, and then also for anybody listening, uh, one to $2 billion uh, worth of cryptocurrency was lost with FTX. Just fun fact. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the the part that you mentioned about um, private uh, investment from governments into these uh, funds, I think you, I think that's a thing that no one talks about, but that is absolutely the truth. I think I think we saw that with FTX. Uh, I also think like VCs, uh, just in general, the vast majority of them. I don't see it on the Bitcoin VC side, but I do see it on the um, fiat side. Uh, there they do have like a checkbox, right? <laughs> and it's just like this this little like uh, bingo card. Do they go to this particular school? Checkbox. Do they do uh, do they uh, do they uh, are they a developer that uh, is uh, is going to systematically change things uh, from the inside with with uh, the tip with the technology that they're trying to advance? Checkbox. And it's just it just goes down this line of like these boxes. And then from there, it's just, uh, Hey, we're investing in this. We're leading the round. Hey, let's get this over to somebody else. Hey, we're investing. Okay, cool. And then before it just becomes an over oversized snowball that just goes downhill, um, literally going downhill. And you're, you're seeing that happening, especially on the, on the cryptocurrency side of things. Um, you see that with, um, with like, uh, what was that? What was the name of that? I forget the name of that. DAO or whatever it was called, but you see that on that side, you see that with FTX. And the thing that I didn't realize that you kind of brought up there was the whole whales in the space getting upset and then uh, making moves. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I've never heard that before, but I can kind of see that being a thing. I mean, there is no proof behind it. Yeah, absolutely. You can see <laughs> how there was a consequence after that debate. I mean, it happened all too fast, almost as if there was some 
larger consensus about stuff that should happen. The secret telegram in group. The near future. <laughs> Maybe that they perceived SBF as a threat and they wanted to destroy him. Yeah, I, 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 I totally, I totally see but that. Yeah, you, I, I did see yeah. some attitudes and responses from people like Jesse Powell from Kraken, who was tweeting about stuff that we should be more careful about the people that we promote in this space and we put in high positions, because if they are not ideologically aligned and they are in this for the U.S. dollars, they might turn out to be destructive. And they might just end up cooperating with the same forces against which we're trying to push back and say, just leave us alone. That's the thing that's a, honestly right there. What you just said, that's so, the thing that surprised me the most, that- Vlad. That's the thing that surprised me the most was when I came into the Bitcoin space, I expected to see a lot of like diehard Bitcoiners. And I do see that. But the the more and more I, I stay in this space, the more I realize there's just a lot of um, people just focused on fiat dollars. Like that's all they care about. I mean, they front as a, as a Bitcoiner, but behind closed doors, they're fiat maximalists. And that's a thing that's shocking uh, for me. Uh, and you wouldn't know, um, but you would be surprised. And that's the thing that's just like, I can't believe it. Um, but um, yeah, I think you're right about that. Oh, I, I had a lot of fun watching influencers like American Huddle and Dieter Bob or whatever his name is. They they had that famous debate that people have watched and there's a transcript of it. Nobody ever t- made a transcript of my podcasts for free, but that one apparently was super important. And all they did was brag about how they both sit by the pool and they want everyone following them to do the same. And they have real estate, they have cars, they have whatever. It was basically a degeneration of the reasons why one gets into Bitcoin. And, you know, I'm fine with it. Let them sell their coins. Let them live their lives however they please. I mean, at one point, you end up having nothing but Bitcoin if you are super convinced about it. And you have to sell it to do stuff. Unless you follow the Michael Saylor, ah, I can't speak anymore. Unless you follow the Michael Saylor school of thought and always borrow against it, which turned out to be a bad idea with these institutions like BlockFi, Celsius, whatever, which allowed you to borrow money against your Bitcoin. It's not a very sustainable model, but whatever. Some people do it for some reason. And by the way, speaking of governmental forces and whatever, I'm super convinced that Michael Saylor is the CIA. What? Really? Wow. How, what, what, are yeah. you writing an article on it or something? I don't know. Like you, you can call him whatever you want, but he merged super quickly in 2020. He rose to prominence. He was elevated by everyone just because he bought some coins, which he doesn't even self-custody. And he gets a free pass on lots of stuff only because he has a platform and speaks all the right words. And it's so funny to me how people get mesmerized by his rhetoric and don't see the larger picture and don't ask themselves, why does this guy speak of Bitcoin as digital gold or a store of value? If you're cynical and you think that he's just 
a businessman, maybe that you're going to assume that he wants to turn MicroStrategy into a Bitcoin bank and they want you to buy MicroStrategy stocks expecting that you're going to own shares of that Bitcoin. And that might be the case. But I think to a greater extent, he is a force that's trying to regulate Bitcoin so that it becomes like gold in the sense that you're going to end up trading it on some company's balance sheet. You're not going to have a a non-custodial wallet, a real wallet anymore. You're going to buy Bitcoin from MicroStrategy and send it to the bank and have this super nice application like PayPal on your phone and have these companies handle everything for you. And that's what it was like during the gold standard, right? You did not directly own the gold. You, you had it stored in the bank and you had banknotes that were issued to be transferred for that gold. So I see this happening on his side. He speaks of Bitcoin as digital gold, but to him, it means that it's going to be traded as such, like gold used to be, meaning that it's stored in vaults, it's stored by big banks and vaulting facilities, and you only trade the ownership of that gold, which is being custodied by someone else. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. Uh, I think I think you should write that article. I would love to read more about this, and, and then you know see the sources that you kind of. I did. You did already. Where is it at on? But it, it 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 was so ignored. Oh, how did I miss it? But uh, I'm not sure I presented these exact same arguments. But uh, I did write something about it. It's called "Why Michael Saylor Might Turn Out to Be a Bitcoin Super Villain." I think that's what it's called. Oh, it's wow. in my first magazine from last year. Okay. Huh. I'll check it out. I, yeah, I, I do I, a lot of stuff and have lots of ideas. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not very good at selling it. So a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. It's my people fault, want to read it. I'm happier when I create than when I spend my day on Twitter promoting. Yeah. I was going to ask you, are you still, are you still jamming out? Are you still um, doing uh, music? Sometimes. I, I, I feel the motivation to do it less and less this past year. But I, I think I'm going to go back to it because you have these creative places where you go to unleash your rage or whatever. <laughs> And I think I spent a lot of time podcasting. I spent a lot of time writing. I will still do a lot of that in the next few years. But I feel like I I have some songs in me that I want to take out and record. And that that's what I want to do more of next year. Nice. I uh, I I got to look at your PlayStation Two style Bitcoin Takeover magazine in in Tabcom this year. Uh, I sent you a picture uh, earlier, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago, but um, dude, it came out really good, man. It came out really good. I'm just so impressed with the the quality of it. I, I feel like uh, the I feel like the from when I seen the other one from last year, last year's Tapcom from this one, it's just like night and day as far as like the your process is getting better. Your it's, uh, it's looking really good, man. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so if you have no idea about the Bitcoin Takeover magazine, 
It's btctkvr.com. You can go there and you can download the magazine for free. It's open source also under the Creative Commons Zero License. And this means that you can share it, you can modify it, you can sell it, you can do whatever you want with the content, as long as you give credit to the original creator. So yeah, I, I printed 1,400 of them approximately this year. Wow. And you're lucky, Car, because you got the best editions, meaning that they were printed on the heaviest, thickest piece of paper ever. There is something special about that print shop in Atlanta, and they made it bulkier. Like, I very much enjoyed the chunkiness of it when I hold it in my hands. There were some thinner ones that I printed in other cities around Europe. When I went to conferences, I basically told them that they can print some. So I printed some in Prague. I printed some in Riga. I printed some in Istanbul, but those are also pretty thick. And I printed some here in Romania. And I sent them out by a post. That's why I was late for this interview, because I was at the post office sending a few magazines. It takes a lot of my time, but I enjoy it. Yeah. My sole purpose when I started working on this one, on this second one, was to beat Bitcoin Magazine. (laughs) Because I used to work for them. I know them better than anyone from the outside who has never worked for them. And I, I was with them before they got super big with the conference. Really? At the time, they were oh, still wow. running on a tight budget. Yeah. So I, I heard that people nowadays get paid like $500, $700, even $1,000 for one article. I, I would get like 100 Oh, you mean like dollars? So I'm not complaining about oh, that. Oh, okay. Pay. Yeah. It's, it's just that I think I didn't they get bought out or something the way that they were treating me? Didn't they get bought out, or was this What's was this did, did did didn't they get bought out like somewhere in between then and now? And maybe you had like a different. Did you have the same group of people from when you were there and where they are now, or is it? Yeah, they they, they went bankrupt in 2020 when the pandemic started. That's not something that many people know, but they. They had to fire their writers and their editors. And for a few months, they were only doing Zoom chats with people. Because what they did was to put too much money into the San Francisco conference that was supposed to take place in 2020. And when the pandemic started, they realized that they have no budget to move forward. So they had to fire people, which is ironic because they did that about one month after I quit. It's not related, but it's almost as if I left at the right time, because if I hadn't, I would have been fired. So it was the right call to move away from them. But they had a great success with the 2021 conference in Miami and the 2022 one, and that's where they make most of their money. And right now, they're a more successful organization. And that's only a reason for me to try to be better than them at producing a magazine. And for next year, I'm planning to do something which is called Breaking FUD. And it will feature articles which take some of the most popular misconceptions about Bitcoin and explain why they are wrong. That's where I'm at right now. Interesting. Yeah, um, I have friends in, in, in... Bitcoin magazine and 
they've, they've been nice to me um, the past two years, um, but I don't know their history as much as you do for sure. Um, I, I will say, I will say though, that um, they have some, I mean, they have, they have I, some I really some great people nice working people there. Like Christian Carolis or CK. Yeah. yeah they're, they're one of the nicest guys I've met ever. I in think his life. I also, I also think too, Vlad, and you know it's this. It's just that I got frustrated with the yeah. management. That's all. Yeah, I also think. I mean, you know this, and I know this. Like doing a whole media company is freaking hard. Dude. I don't think there's anything harder than doing a media company um, uh, this day and age. It's really hard, just for eyeballs, listeners, readers, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then on top of that, you throw it into a little niche like Bitcoin. Um, I, I actually, I, you know, I read, I read everybody's stuff. I love Bitcoin magazine. I read it all the time. Um, I read your stuff. I read it all the time. I read all, I read all the publications. Uh, I'm just kind of like a, a news junkie like that. Um, and, but the thing I always, that I always remember, um, and I learned this from Marty was like, I, I don't look at everybody else in the Bitcoin spaces competition. If anything, I, I look at like my local news and my Austin American statesman <laughs> as like the real competition, like, um, here in my community is like who, like, I want to, I want to beat those people. Like I want to beat the K views and the KXANs and like the Austin American statement and, and like those type of people. That's who I really focus on, on all the fiat media publications. But, um, I think, I think your magazine is just completely different than their, their type of magazine. Personally, I, there's just two different sorts of magazines. Um, I kind of want to get into the whole, I want to, I want to make a zine in 2023. I keep saying I'm going to make one, but, um, I'm pref, I'm definitely going to be hitting you up <laughs> on some, I, on, on some more like ideas and how you, how you kind of got it started. Cause, uh, yeah, man, you're a big influence on me back in 2019. Like, uh, just seeing how you launched Bitcoin takeover and then you're writing your own stuff and was able to ask you all these questions and learn from you from afar. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I also, we also have Jose. I don't know if you remember Jose from talking in Bents. I don't know if you talk to him very often. Of course I remember Jose. Uh, okay. His last name is Burgos or something. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's, he's inside a pub lab now too. And he's, re he's recording pods and this is his artwork here behind me and stuff uh, that he brought over. So it's kind of cool. This is because of you. Uh, I even met Jose. So it's like, um, yeah, man, you're doing it, but you're doing it from you know, across the pond, you know? So. Just keep it going, man. I try. And let me tell you that I was super happy when I saw that FTX finally went down. But the consequences of that and, you know, it, it's also become harder for Bitcoiners to monetize their work. Which is why I guess I was super extravagant with this year's magazine for next year. I think I'm going to do 50 pages or something just to reduce the printing costs. Not because I got lazy or ran out of creative energy or whatever. It's just that I have to admit that the costs are super high for printing magazines. And worldwide, I think the average was about $15 to $20 for one copy. And that's only because I want them in high quality 150 gram paper. And that turns out to be an expensive demand. But yeah, I I realized that it has become harder right now to be a Bitcoin content creator. If you choose to cover shit coins and you call them poopoo coins, maybe that I cussed on your show and I 
I guess you're gonna have to label this episode. No, you're as fine. Vulgar or whatever. No, you're fine. Sorry I, for I that. just, I just, I just try to stay away but from that word as best I if can. You, if you choose to <laughs> cover all of that, there's a lot of money for it because people printed their own money. They managed to fool someone to list their coin to give it valuation, and now they they have expectations for marketing, promotion, and whatever. I could be making so much money if <laughs> I accepted to to be like what's his name? The guy Ben something. Yeah. Bitcoin Ben? Oh, that guy. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Bitcoin, yeah. That guy. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, man. His name is Ben Armstrong or something. Yeah. So that guy, like he has no shame. He pretends he cares, but in fact he doesn't. And when he, he was hit by the Celsius and the FTX situation, which he both chilled, and he started acting super concerned, going to the Bahamas and spending most likely the money that he made from FTX just to do that fake investigation, God. which has no journalistic value, but it's like a show, <laughs> you know? And it's something that I appreciate in you Americans, that you know how to promote yourselves and keep your branding relevant. Whereas if a European did that, I guess we would just apologize and be like, yeah, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to do better. But I see that American content creators tend to double down a lot more. Yeah, the, 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 crypto, the YouTube crypto scene is um, non-existent in my world now. I don't, I don't look at it anymore. It's unfortunate that I have to see so much um, of it on Twitter, but I think that's where Noster is. Kind of, that's where my eyeballs are moving to these days. Jumping on Nostra and only seeing Bitcoin stuff and boss stuff and stuff. So that's, that's cool. Don't get me wrong. There are so many good lessons to be learned from the failures of poo-poo coins. <laughs> Dude, and there is. We see with every failing coin or token, we, we see stuff that we don't want to happen to Bitcoin. And for that educational purpose, I guess they they were valuable to some extent, at least to me, even if I'm not invested and I couldn't care less. It's just that we are being shown real life examples of stuff that you could maybe theorize about and you could say that this can happen, but you see what happens when it really happens and you see how people get hurt and it's something that you want to avoid at all costs. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to finish this off with... Uh... What's uh, what's your advice uh, for 2023? That's that's my that's my final question. Let's let's kind of what, what what's your advice, and then also what do you see kind of uh, happening as well too, like some of the trends and stuff. Just in Bitcoin, just in Bitcoin. I mean, I could give you advice, but you you you'll you'll end up being lonely and basically a nerd that has no friends. So I'm not sure if it's a good idea, but. My advice would be to focus on whatever it is that you want to accomplish and take it one day at a time, one foot in front of the other, just keep going. It's going to be hard. We're going to have about two or three years of no market movements and it's going to get boring if you look at the price. But this is the best time to figure out what it is that you want to do. It's also the best time to pitch your project to potential investors who might have dumped on you 
<laughs> they definitely sold. So yeah, just figure out what it is that you want to do and build and success cam comes afterwards, even though it's not a topic about which I can discuss easily because I, I still struggle. You know, I, I might have delivered lots of magazines, but I haven't really made any money from it. I'm just happy that I put them out there. They're out there in the wild and people are aware of my work. So I measure success in terms of impact, I guess, but I'm I'm still not, I, I cannot say about myself that I made it. I'm like a musician or something that went on tour, did all of that cool stuff that he always wanted to do, but then came back home and she's like, I, I'm still not successful. You know, maybe that people have heard me speak or sing or produce magazines or whatever it is that I do. But, you know, I, I, I'm still not at that level where I imagine myself, which means that I have to work harder. And that's what I'm planning to do. That's awesome. I, I, I think the thing I've always seen from you is like you just play to your strengths. You know, um, you, um, you don't try to follow the crowd and you tend to just like recognize and embrace things. Um, that's what I see from a distance from you. Um, and then you definitely inspire others too. That's a, that's a, that's, I mean, you inspired me a lot. Um, you have that kind of DIY mentality. Um, so it's, it's, that, that's infectious when people see that it's just infectious. And that's what I like, love the most about you, Vlad. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your kind words, but you get to a point where you want to do stuff and you run into problems. And usually the biggest problem is the budget or the time or the energy. But you realize that if you're not doing it, then most likely nobody else will. And there's something unique about it and you need to believe in whatever it is that you're about to do and give it a try. And you're going to fail most likely in the beginning and people are not going to take you seriously because that's how it works. That's how our minds work. We need, we need to resort to some sort of authority in everything. And unless you have the recommendation from some sort of authoritative party, someone says they like your work, the others are not going to care about it. Which is why with my magazine, I targeted lots of developers. Even if they're not the most influential, they are the most capable of giving feedback. And the ones who might help me get better. And unfortunately, I did not get much feedback. I'm happy I got a magazine to Nick Sabo, which to me, I think is the greatest accomplishment. I also got one to Adam Back. I got one to P Peter Willey and also everyone who was at TapConf. Gloria Zhao, who is a maintainer of the Bitcoin Core project right now. Merch, who is also very active in development. I'm happy that I got these, you know, Peter Todd and lots of others who come to Europe. So I'm super happy that, for example, Paul Stortz knows about my project. I'm not happy that the average person does not. And I'm still, I'm pretty sure that my visibility on Twitter is limited. I still have to struggle. But the best part is that when I go to a conference and I went to a few this year, 
I noticed that people care much more in person when I tell them about the project. At one point, I was talking to someone from the Human Rights Foundation and I nearly convinced them to print some magazines for their causes. They didn't because they realized how expensive it would be as an endeavor. So they, they were like, $20 for one copy? I was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you have to print it on the best kind of paper. And I ended up printing some magazines for El Salvador in Spanish and some others in French for a conference which took place in France. And later in the year, some were printed in Senegal, in Dakar for a conference. So I feel like I got to lots of places, but I'm still not financially successful. Yeah. So I'm going to keep trying. Maybe people will remember and care about the project. At this point, I'm not sure they value it too much. They just see it as something cool. I gave a lot of magazines for free. And I'm going to see next year if people are willing to pay for this. Even if it's a small amount, which doesn't even cover the print costs. Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely cool. And you're you're adding to the culture, Vlad. So if for nothing else... Um, there's that. And then just keep stacking, man. Just got to keep stacking. Have you used Stacker News? Do you use Stacker News? I feel like, I feel like that's an easy way to stack. I do days. use it, but I'm not super successful. So yeah. What are you I talking about? There, I noticed that there's not much stuff happening. A few times I even boosted my posts and I noticed that there's not much of a difference. You got you to gotta get in the comments. That's what it is. You got to like interact and... You have, you have a lot of expertise when it comes to like uh, journalistic uh, endeavors. So it's like that you're the perfect person to give advice to this stuff, to these guys. But um, yeah, man. I'm good at creating. I'm not that great at promoting. Yeah. And you, you need to get a, yeah, you should, you should just get the, uh, I thought you had a tele, don't you have a telegram group for Bitcoin takeover? Is that not taking off? I do, but they're pretty chill and quiet people who don't really enjoy chatting. <laughs> they enjoy receiving updates. Yeah. They don't talk much. Uh, okay. Yeah, man. Well, maybe Noster. So it's not super active. If you're listening to this, you can join it. It's t.me slash btctkvr. You can join it. <laughs> On Noster, yeah, I, I can give it some time. But at the same time, it, it kind of hurts when you have to choose between spending time to create something like publishing a podcast episode, editing a video that you recorded last year. I, I have a hardware wallet review that I recorded last year and had no time to edit, which is stupid. And I feel guilty every day for not publishing it. I'm at a point where I'm still asking myself if, if it makes sense to spend some time with it. I have a guy who right now is doing shorts for, from my podcast episodes because... I need to focus on creating new content and I need someone to look at my previous work to extract something that's interesting and promote it to the public. But still, I'm not sure. I guess I had a pleasant surprise on TikTok where I have about 1,000 followers in one month with this content, but they're normies. I guess this is where hyper-Bitcoinization is going to happen, not on Twitter. Not on Noster, where people already know about this stuff and don't care about my work. I guess it's going to come from all of these people who make dancing videos. I don't know. 